I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and our guests are Barney Reynolds from Shearman Sterling, and also Tom Braithwaite, our US Lex columnist. This week, we will be discussing the latest developments in the Brexit debate as the City of London decides on its demands, or rather its requests, for what Brexit should mean for the city. Secondly, we'll be looking at Deutsche Bank as a former whistleblower there turns down a big payout. And finally, we'll have our segment from the US, where our US banking correspondent, Alistair Gray, has been looking at the mortgage insurance market. First, though, to that vexed topic of Brexit. And I'm delighted to say that Barney Reynolds from Shearman Sterling is on the line to talk about exactly how Brexit can affect the financial organisations that he's advising, what options are on the table. This is very timely because in the past few days we've heard from some of the city's biggest names via the British Bankers Association and others what they would like the government to negotiate in terms of the UK's access to the single market. And Barney, you're quite hopeful. Yes. I think if one picks through the existing European laws in place for financial services, there are all sorts of hooks that the UK can use right now to ensure that an awful lot of what currently takes place will carry on after any exit has taken place. And that's a starting point for improvement and therefore the position isn't anything like as bad as one might think. I suppose another point to make at the outset when thinking about the importance of any deal is that the point of a financial centre is that it's a centre. Most of the dealings in the City of London take place within the city, encompassing Canary Wharf, obviously, and they're not cross-border as a matter of law at all. Or, with very minor adjustments, they could be made not to be cross-border. But what about the whole idea that our friends on the continent of Europe are going to make every effort to grab this business, to make sure that any agreements that are struck are to the disadvantage of of the city, not least in order to give preference to their own financial centres and draw business to Frankfurt and Paris? Aren't financial institutions going to be affected by any tempting offers that are in place and or uh, restrictions that are put in place? I don't think so. There is a sort of concept that's been introduced into the various sectoral directives since the credit crunch, whereby if third countries, and the UK will be a so-called third country, i.e. a non-European country, have equivalent laws and regulations on a particular topic to those in the EU, they get access just as they would do under a passport. That access isn't automatic, is it? That needs to be negotiated and agreed by all members of the EU. Well, it's basically a technocratic process of verifying that the main systemic risk purposes underlying the European laws are replicated in the foreign law. So I don't see it as being a political process. There is a sort of stamp-off at a European level that's required, but it's essentially a technical process. And this applies to 
third countries right around the world, and it would incorporate the EU. But those laws have been applied in favour of Mexico, the United States, Singapore, and all sorts of other countries. I see no reason why they would not be applied properly and fairly to the UK in the same way. Okay, one final point, really, in terms of what this will look like in terms of Britain's partnership with Europe going forward. There was talk last week of a kind of Swiss plus model that was controversial in some areas. Some city financiers like to think of a unique arrangement between the UK and the EU. But what is your assessment of what the ultimate arrangement might look like? Well, it's always difficult to break down these sort of overarching terms. What I think a lot of people mean by Swiss plus, and certainly what I think is likely to happen, is that there will be a negotiated deal with the starting point being equivalence under all the regimes where it's already in place, but there being an expansion of those equivalence regimes to fill in some of the holes where it currently doesn't exist, so as to provide a much more all-encompassing relationship between the UK and the EU, where so long as the UK has equivalent laws in the particular sector, it will continue to have access, and vice versa, because remember, the EU will need access to the UK It's not the case that you can split financial markets into lots and lots of little bits very easily. There are huge consequential costs to doing that. And also, people historically, and I think going forward, despite the rise of the internet age and so on, want to deal with each other face-to-face in the same location. So I think that will continue. The city will continue its dominance, and the EU will continue to need access to the city. It's just not going to move lock, stock and barrel somewhere else. So there needs to be an accommodation. It seems to me that's the only easily viable option. The other option, the so-called continuation of passporting, which a lot of people talk about, would be very nice to negotiate if it's doable. But there are some big sovereignty issues around that, which I think make it quite difficult to achieve, not least because it means that the UK would subject itself to rulemaking by others, in which it either played no part or it had a voting role in making the rules that could be outvoted. And in addition to that, passporting generally means signing up to supranational bodies, which have sort of ultimate oversight over certain applications of rules, and also to the role of the European Court of Justice in interpreting the rules. All those three things seem to me to be pretty difficult to navigate. Hence, I think we get back to the fact that equivalence seems like the best way forward. It's a perfectly attractive way forward. It's been operated fine as a technique in other contexts for derivatives clearing and also for reinsurance, and I think it can be expanded. And in fact, it has been expanded already in European laws still to come into effect. For instance, MIFID II, the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive Number 2, which comes into effect in January 2018. So the framework is there. It would be expanded upon in this negotiated solution by filling in some holes and putting some process around how it would operate going forward, both outbound from the UK to Europe and inbound from Europe to the UK. Let me just bring in Martin briefly to reflect on what you've just said, Barney. Yeah, just one extra question for you, Barney. Talking to some of the city bigwigs who are ruminating on these issues, it strikes me that this is a hugely complex area. Trade policy is, by its very nature, incredibly complex. And it's going to take a lot of time to negotiate the kind of bespoke bilateral trade deal that we're talking about here. And there is a big concern in the city that there's a risk of a kind of cliff edge moment where we leave the EU and have not yet negotiated a replacement arrangement or we have negotiated a replacement arrangement, but it is yet to be ratified because it needs to be ratified by all 27 other members of the EU. And that can take a long time. And just one of them can scupper the whole thing. Certainly, there are people saying that. 
I think there is a point there. I think, however, it's not quite as traumatic as one might first assume, because I believe the equivalence processes under the various directives are largely technical in the way I mentioned, and that we should get equivalence under those regimes from day one of Brexit, which will occur a sort of meaningful amount of time after even MIFID II comes into effect in January 2018, allowing time for an equivalence determination. So most of what takes place in the city should carry on actually under an equivalence framework. There is going to be a transitional agreement. It would be nice to have flesh on the bones as to what that means in precise terms now. That would obviously help. But I would anticipate that both sides will agree that the transitional framework needs to smooth the path. I would also anticipate actually it won't be so necessary for the financial markets because there will be a framework which plugs some gaps in equivalence, and that doesn't necessarily require the agreement of all the member states. There are other ways potentially to expand equivalence into other directives in a sort of less heavy-hitting way. Okay, well, we should leave the topic there, but I think one thing's for certain, once you return from your holiday, you're going to be a very busy man for quite some time to come. Vardy Reynolds from Sherman Sterling, thank you very much. Pleasure. Let's move on now to the latest shenanigans at Deutsche Bank. This time Deutsche is in the news because a former whistleblower who alerted the authorities to a misstatement of accounts at the bank several years ago has now turned down an award from the SEC, his share of a $16.5 million payout, which would have been awarded in recognition of his whistleblowing. This is Eric Benazzi, a former Deutsche risk officer, and he is cross that the bank has not recovered the funds from former executives by recouping bonuses and so on, and instead the bank and its shareholders are having to bear the brunt of the cost. Well, I'm joined now by Tom Braithwaite, a Lex columnist who's based on the US West Coast, but back at the time that this story broke in 2011, he was US banking editor. Tom, thanks for joining us. Remind us exactly what did happen back in 2011. In 2011, Eric Bernatzi, who was a risk manager at Deutsche Bank, went to the SEC to say that the bank was misvaluing derivatives. Um, It had a huge derivatives portfolio during the financial crisis. And it turns out that he wasn't the only one to have done so. We know of at least three whistleblowers who made similar allegations which essentially boiled down to if Deutsche had properly valued this book, it would have had to take big losses in 2008 and 2009. Um, The SEC in 2015 agreed with that and fined Deutsche Bank $55 million. And then what we reported last week is that the SEC decided to give an award equivalent to 30% of that $55 million to two of the whistleblowers. And yet, as we've now discovered, Eric Benazzi himself has turned down his share of that. Yeah, he's crossed that the SEC hasn't made Deutsche recoup it from executives or hasn't gone after individuals. That's quite a principled stand to take because this is presumably several million dollars that's at stake here. What's in it for him? Yeah, I mean, it's a reasonable question. So his share is $8.25 million. What he said is he can't refuse all of it because his ex-wife has a divorce court judgment that entitles her to 50% of it. His lawyers also have entitlement to a fair chunk, I believe somewhat under 20%. And there's also some outside experts. So, I mean, he's not turning down 8 million, plus the remains would be taxed. But 
we're certainly talking a couple of million dollars. What's in it for him? I don't know. One suggestion I heard from someone else is that, you know, this principal stands might be worth more money to him on the lecture circuit than taking the actual money. I don't think that is true. I think having spent some time with him, he is a sort of true believer. He's really upset, as other whistleblowers were, with the way that they were treated by Deutsche Bank. And he expected and hoped for action to be taken against individuals. It wasn't. And he's willing to give up, admittedly not eight million, but perhaps a couple of million to make his point. Well, maybe it does change the way regulators and banks think about whistleblower remuneration and the recouping of it. Certainly in this case, it's grabbed some headlines. Tom, thanks very much for giving us your views of the story. Now, finally, still in the US, actually, we go over to Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent. This week, Arch agreed to spend $3.4 billion on AIG's mortgage insurer, UGC. It'll make the Bermuda-based group the biggest private sector provider of US mortgage cover. And Alistair was speaking to Dinos Yordanu, uh, Arch's chief executive, about this and asked him about the reasons for the acquisition. Well, clearly we are increasing uh, our uh, exposure to the sector in a big way, but that was our goal from day one when we acquire the PMI assets and we enter you know, the sector. We originally tried to do it organically and we were in a good path. I thought that by another two or three years, we would have gotten to the level that we always envisioned. But occasionally you find opportunities that it can get you there a lot quicker. And this was the opportunity for us to acquire United Guarantee, a company that we have a lot of respect for as a competitor in the marketplace. And we also appreciated some of their approach to the business, which was very similar to ours, meaning the risk-based pricing approach and the analytics that they bring to the table which we believe enhance the ability in the sector to produce profitability for many years to come. And the the U.S. housing market seems to be in pretty decent shape at the moment, especially if you look at the, the level of defaults near historic lows. For how long do you expect that to continue? It's hard to tell how long. We didn't uh, make the acquisition because we can predict the future, but I think we can control our destiny through underwriting. You know, having said that, the housing market in the U.S. is in good shape, as you have said. Housing prices hit bottom and they're starting to recover. And uh, I believe the process of originating mortgages today is so much more robust that it fits well with our idea of uh, underwriting the risk in a prudent you know, way up front. Well, as you just alluded to, the um, uh, the crisis was very difficult for this subsector. How can you manage the risks? Well, you have to examine the causation of the financial crisis and also what happened to the mortgage insurance sector at the time. And I think you have two issues on the table. One issue is the economic issue. Uh, the economy will go through cycles, higher unemployment at some point in time, uh, lower GDP growth, even maybe recession coming in the horizon. And that will have an effect on the mortgage insurance sector from a loss point of view. Yeah, defaults will escalate, etc. However, when you add to it, what I will consider was bad underwriting. And there was quite a bit of it. 
meaning underwriting uh, uh, no verification loans and old old A loans, et cetera, that compounded significant, you know, the difficulty that DMI companies endure during the financial crisis. So I will say uh, approximately 70% of the pain was self-induced and maybe 30% of the pain was induced by economic conditions. The 70% is something that you control. As an underwriting company, you decide which mortgage is acceptable, you know, from a risk point of view, and which is not, and it has nothing to do with economic conditions. The other 30%, of course, is the cat risk that is associated with the mortgage business, and is no different than when you underwrite on the PNC world, catastrophic events such as earthquakes or hurricanes, which we are in that business, you try to manage your aggregations based on your capital base. And you know, when the earthquakes and the hurricanes don't come, you're gonna have phenomenal results. And when they do, you're gonna have losses. But at the end, those losses, they will be within the capacity of the organization to absorb because you have managed your PMLs and your capital appropriately. The share prices of some of the listed mortgage insurers have come off the boil a bit. And I wonder to what extent this deal with AIG is is you showing again your your opportunistic side, if you don't mind me using that term. You know, you launched soon after 9-11 and you went in to take advantage of the higher premium rates and you, you launched the, the mortgage insurance and business in the first place by buying assets out of bankruptcy. You've now picked up this, this business on the cheap? Well, I think we picked up the business at a fair price. I leave others to decide if it was expensive or cheap. I think we were happy with the transaction, and I think AIG is happy with the amount that we're paying them for. Uh, Having said that, I think that the MI space is misunderstood a bit because of the financial crisis. People have not really spent a lot of time and effort and analytics to understand as to what caused the major problems back in the financial crisis and how those problems can be corrected, you know, permanently for the future. This deal will reduce the number of operators in the sector from seven to six, I think. Are you you anticipating any antitrust barriers? We don't anticipate any. Don't forget, it's from eight to seven. You forgot FHA. which has more than 50% of the market. So uh, the government taking 50% of the market doesn't see that as antitrust, I don't think. Uh, Don't forget, the combination of of RGMI and United Guarantee is less than 30% of the private market, which is less than 14 or 13% of the total market. So it's not a controlling you know, number, so to speak. There have been pricing pressures in this sector in recent months. Are you expecting that to continue? Well, they have been, and uh, they came in different parts of the business. But at the end of the day, that does not influence either our participation in the sector or us trying to compete on price. I I think this sector needs to compete based on uh, appropriately pricing the risk and good service to the customer base. Is the pricing not risk-based and appropriately done, done already? The only two companies that they had a risk-based pricing approach was the United Guarantee Corporation and us. Most of our listeners won't be experts in mortgage insurance. So how do the others operate? Well, they have the old rate car, as we do, because some uh, 
some of the uh, originators, they prefer the old rate card, which basically has two variables in pricing, which is a loan to value and a credit score. But in our risk-based pricing approach, we have about 17 variables. We introduce other variables that would determine the probability of a loan to default. For example, uh, the two co-borrowers on one is where is the property is located, what is the profession of the individuals applying for the mortgage, and and what is fairly basic stuff, isn't it? The basic only if you if you put the time and effort and access the analytics available, uh, predictive analytics to to make sure that you're applying the right price to the probability of a particular mortgage uh, uh, defaulting. Very good. Well, Dinos, thanks so much for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio, our guest Barney Reynolds from Shearman Sterling, Alistair and his guest in the US, and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.